Well, I suppose at the outset, in realising again we have some of the younger folks here, I should ask the question, well, what does it mean to be a Presbyterian? Is it just a name we've chosen in terms of a denominational tag? Uh, a name distinct from perhaps a, a Baptist or an Episcopalian? We just happen to choose a different name. It's because we have a Scottish connection. Well, yes, that is, but that's not the reason why uh, we're Presbyterians. But there is a connection of thought. The word itself, Presbyterian, of course, is derived from the Greek word for an elder. Presbyteros, the elder, used in connection with the bishop or the shepherd of the flock. And so, in some sense, to be a Presbyterian is to submit to eldership rule. What does it look like? Well, as a congregation, you appoint elders. They represent your mind, and in that sense, so doing, they oversee the work of God here. Are there things that are decided by the congregation? Well, yes, but they are generally things that come through the eldership to the people. As opposed to a congregational church, where again the people themselves will vote for everything the church decides to do. And so it is a some form of a representative form of church government. But historically, whilst that reflects, reflects the local church, historically it also involved the formation of presbyteries. And the idea of groups of elders from various churches meeting together to support one another, to help each other, and to further the kingdom by cooperation in the work. So presbyteries, again, groups of elders from various churches meeting together for the common good of the entire body. Such a thing will happen in God's will next week, or this week, sorry, in Calgary. Uh, we'll find a group of elders meeting together, representing their churches, and also seeking to do those things which is for the common good. Now, there are many things, again, within our presbytery that goes really beyond today's message. But let me put it this way. Our book of church order uh, describes the benefit of presbytery in this way. It says this, The unity and purity of the church are better expressed and maintained in the interdependency. That's the word that's key the interdependency of a number of congregations freely associated under a scriptural form of government than in the isolated workings of independent congregations accountable to no ecclesiastical body outside each congregation. That's a direct quote from our book of church order. I think I put it into the, did I put it into the bulletin? I, I planned to. I did, there it is. So it's in the bulletin there. So that's a, a description from our own book of church order regarding the benefit of presbytery, the Unity and purity better served in independent interdependency, not independency. Now we often consider Acts 15 as the template for a presbytery, where there are men giving opinions, a determination is made by the group of men. We even see James serving as a sort of a form of a moderator, summing up the debate before presenting the uh, the conclusion. But the concept of a Presbyterian model of cooperation is implied throughout the New Testament letters. That's the theme. It's this idea of interdependent cooperation in ministry for the benefit of the entire body. And so as we think about our presbytery this week and prepare for a season of prayer, I want to highlight some of these matters, the cooperation and the benefit of being part of an interdependent group of churches First of all, you'll see in your outline, there, are, there is the issue of concerns. We might talk about shared care or shared concerns. Paul, of course, talks about his personal burden. He talks about the care of the churches. 
The sense of the burden of the wider body, all the churches, not one single church, but the care of the churches. Now, I understand, please, before you rise up and protest here, I understand that there is something of Paul that is uniquely apostolic. But we are to follow him as he follows Christ. And in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it is clear that Christ cares for the churches, plural. That he's a burden for the churches. And Paul is simply being Christ-like in his burden for the churches. And so if we are to be Christ-like and follow the apostolic model, then we also ought to have a concern for the churches. Not just this church. As you turn to Philippians chapter 4, and note the language at the end of the chapter. And here we get a sense of this matter of if you like, shared burden and shared concern. Paul concludes the letter, verse number 21, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Again, we know Paul has written this. He's in prison. He's in Rome. But he's familiar with the Roman believers, likely visiting him, encouraging him. And he describes that the saints, they, they salute them. And so what he's saying is, the Roman church greets and salutes the Philippian church. And implied in that is a sense of mutual care and concern. You see, turn back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and the verse number 19. And here you have it even more emphatically stated. Like this is, again, I wanted to, to use Philippians as the as the main text here, but you'll see it very clearly now in Philipp- in First Corinthians chapter 16, the churches of Asia salute you. Multiple churches in Asia. And they salute the church in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. In this sense of salutation, what does that imply? Well, I believe it implies common knowledge. They knew of each other and some sense of common fellowship. Not a sense of isolation, that kind of hyper-isolation where there's, there's no involvement between churches, but rather there's, there's a shared concern. And so if, if you're in Corinth and you hear the churches in Asia salute you, what does that make you think? They're greeting us. They must be thinking of us. They must be concerned for our well-being. These are, these are implied in this language here. It's all clearly implied in the text. There's a mutual concern and care amongst the churches. So let me highlight this piece of paper. This is an older one. It's our prayer bulletin. Again, it's a lady in our Greenville church. This is Judy Brown who produces this every two months. Again, she emails the ministers. Uh, we get a note from Judy. Uh, prayer request, they're due by Friday. And you go, oh, no, I've got to do the prayer request again and get that done. And so we send her the prayer request, and she produces this prayer bulletin. And it gives all of us an insight into each other's churches. Now, sometimes it's hard because you're going, that's the same as last time. <laughs> Nothing changes. We have the same problems, same troubles, same challenges. We want God to bless the word, and you, you, you get the request to write this down. And you think, oh, I have nothing new to say. That's important in itself. But I'm determined, again, we, we've got to reply to this. I am determined to do the reply every single time because I believe firmly in the importance 
that the church in Calgary or the church in Toronto, that they know about the work here, that they encourage the work here, they pray for the work here, and we do for them. And this is very, very important. It's a very important part of what it is to be a praying Presbyterian, that we have this mutual concern and interest in each other's churches. And I want us to be in prayer for the other churches. That's why I very deliberately, when we, the very moment I came here, we broke up the churches into, into sections and we pray for particular churches every Lord's the evening so that you begin to get more and more familiar with the names of the ministers and the particular concerns in those churches. So all what it is to be a Presbyterian. Secondly, though, having thought about concerns, there is the issue also of confession. Not in a box and uh, not to a Roman Catholic priest, but confession in the sense of a confession of our faith. Back to Philippians, first of all. Philippians chapter 3 here. Because what we have as a Presbyterian body is we have a shared commitment to apostolic doctrine. So a shared concern and a shared commitment to apostolic doctrine. Philippians chapter 3 in the verse number 17 says this. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have for us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So what Paul is doing here, he's reminding the Philippians that he serves as an apostle. And he has apostolic authority in a way that is not present today outside the scriptures. He stands as an apostle and he says, follow me and follow those who follow me, but don't follow those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. How do you determine determine who is and who is not an enemy of the cross of Christ? Because there was a shared confession. Now to what degree it was written down, again that's up to some conjecture, but there was a shared understanding of apostolic doctrine. You see, Paul's burden for Philippians is that they would have unity in the church. Chapter 2, verse number 2. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love. But listen, of one accord, of one mind. The sense of a a single purpose for the church. But that unity, back in chapter 1, verse number 27. They strive together for the faith of the gospel. Standing fast in one spirit. It's a a reminder that the church advances only in unity in the gospel. Now there's not this matter of disunity regarding the common things that we hold dear. There is unity in the gospel. Oh yes, Paul has a wider concern. He realizes that there are troubles. You can look at verse number 15. Some indeed preach Christ even out of envy and strife. He realizes there are those and they have different agendas and different purposes. Oh yeah, he rejoices in Christ being preached, but he certainly does not excuse a divisive spirit in the work. He, he points it out, he highlights the strife and envy, dividing the work. Because he understands the importance of unity and truth. The unity, the spirit, key when it comes to the New Testament church. But please turn to Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians chapter 4, we see this even clearly, more clearly emphasized. 
Colossians 4, verse 16, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Just a, it's an incidental detail. It's an inspired scripture. We're meant to learn from it. The Lord has put this in here that we would learn. Again, there are different views as to what the letter to the Laodiceans is, but it may well be referring to the letter to the Ephesians. A different term for that letter. But what you're seeing here, let's say that is the case. The letter to Ephesus and the letter to Colossae, they were exchanged. Because what was said to one church also applied to the other church. Now, yes, there are particular issues in the letters. You take Corinth, for example, there are very particular local issues for Corinth. But the doctrines that, the doctrines that were taught by the apostles applied to every church. Think of the head covering. We have no other custom in any of the churches. There's a, an overlap of apostolic doctrine and teaching across the churches. There's a shared confession of apostolic faith. And that's part of what it is to be a presbytery. That we hold each other accountable regarding doctrine. And it would happen this way, and it should happen this way, that if a church feels that their minister is teaching things that are not according to confession, the church would approach the presbytery, and the presbytery would seek to ensure the unity and the purity of apostolic doctrine in the churches. And so you should, in theory, now I understand the practice will vary, but in theory... A local church is protected from an apostate or a heterodox minister by the presbytery. And so it should not happen that a local church can swerve off course as happens in so many independent churches. Where a man comes, a dominant teacher, perhaps a charismatic figure, and little by little will lead the church in a direction away from the foundation of the church. That should not happen. Because we have a shared commitment to apostolic doctrine, confession. Well, thirdly, finally, there's cooperation. See, a key function of our presbytery is in cooperation in gospel ministry. Cooperating in areas that we cannot do on our own. In terms of training men, sending men out, sending and supporting our missionaries. Those things are key when it comes to the Presbyterian model. Now, I've highlighted three areas of cooperation First of all, cooperation in ministerial resources. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. It's again one of those interesting insights into Paul in his time. Verse 19 says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I may be of good comfort when I know your state." And he speaks of Timothy in glowing terms regarding Timothy's care for the church. He will care for your state. At the same time, verse number 25, he refers to Epaphroditus. I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion, labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger. Now it seems in the case that Epaphroditus was the pastor of the church in Philippi and had gone to encourage Paul for a season. He had gone to visit Paul and there became sick. The church are concerned about his health. And so this letter comes about in some part to encourage the people regarding Epaphroditus. But all you're seeing here is you're seeing a sharing of resources 
between churches and between pastoral needs. I've said it before in terms of my own uh, work in the wider presbytery. I greatly appreciate the fact that you as a church support my work in the wider presbytery. It's part of what it is to be a Presbyterian. Uh, you don't sort of look at my time and say, well, we, we want every minute of the time and uh, that should be spent with us and understanding that we can encourage each other. Other men do the same. We all try to share our time to help the wider body. And so you've been very gracious in terms of uh, me supporting the work in Orlando and trying to go there occasionally and the work in the Presbytery. That's what it is to be a functioning Presbyterian. And it's, it's really very important. And we, uh, I commend you for your work in that regard. There's a sharing of ministerial resources. There's also, secondly, a sharing in the financial burden. Philippians chapter 4 and the verse number 15. But ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Again, I'm going to draw some application here. What's happening here is that in the beginning, Paul leaves the Macedonian region and the Philippian believers communicated, i.e. they supported him financially at that time. That's the context. You go on down and he's described the fact that he knows how to be abased and how to abound. He's describing the matter of his material support in the gospel. And he commends the Philippian church for their financial giving for his ministry. But in the language of verse number 15, it is clearly implied that at that point, only one church supported him, but others should have. He's implying the principle of multiple churches combining together to support the gospel ministry. That's what's involved here. It's not happening, but it is assumed to be appropriate and indeed ideal. Now, again, I understand Paul is an apostle. And at times, Paul was willing to take on work and employment as a tent maker to support himself in the ministry. But surely the principle stands that there is an important role of churches cooperating in financial giving for the benefit of the gospel, the advance of the gospel across the world. Let me give you some numbers here. This week in our presbytery, there'll be a presentation of the budget for the presbytery for next year part of that is our churches we commit to give so much money to the presbytery okay so our levy as a church here in malvin next year is twenty one thousand dollars that's our levy as a church to the presbytery so every month our brother bryce sends so much money uh, down to the presbytery and that's you to support the presbytery twenty one thousand dollars Tenth, works out. There's a few uh, missions here and there, but it's about a tenth of the income of the church. That money is used for the seminary and for missions alongside some other things. But let's take missions. We looked this week, we had a mission board meeting on Tuesday, and we passed the mission board budget for next year that will then go to Presbytery for final revocation. The Presbytery next year is committing to give over just over $100,000 to support mission work under our denomination. Where does that $100,000 come from? That's not, the mission budget's higher than that because there are other things, other gifts, individual gifts coming through and there are various things that support the work. But the press really commits to give just over $100,000. What are we given? 21000 
And that also is divided up into seminary work as well as other pressary needs. So where does it come from? The churches cooperating and working together. We give our share, another church gives their share, and we have a radio ministry in Liberia going forward for the glory of God. You see how it all works? The cooperation of churches laboring together for the advance of the gospel. The seminary. It receives, well last year it's a different time because of the academic year. Last year it received just under $60,000 of presbytery funds. So there's $160,000 needed. Just to get the presbytery support for some of these things. And our churches work together for those things. So be encouraged. When you give to this church, it doesn't all stay here. Much of it is used for the benefit of the church and the wider denominational body. For the work of missions and training men to ministers and missionaries for the cause of God. Well, finally, there is sharing the burden of prayer. Our text for today was chapter 1, verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And the fellowship is also referred to in verse number 7 of chapter 1. Ye are all partakers of my grace. Sharing in the grace that Paul is exerting in the gospel. This cooperation in the ministry. Now here, I understand this. Is, prayer is not emphatically stated here as part of their fellowship in the gospel. But I think it's implied. And what you see in the New Testament letters, you see Paul and his associates asking several churches to pray for them. I beseech you, brethren, strive together with me in your prayers. Romans 15, verse number 30. Ephesians chapter 6, you could say, Ephesians chapter 6, go back a couple of pages. Ephesians 6, verse 19. And for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. First Thessalonians, brethren, pray for us. Second Thessalonians, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified. Philippi, you're praying for Paul. Thessalonica, you're praying for Paul. Rome, you're praying for Paul. Ephesians, you're praying for Paul. You're all together praying for the advance of the gospel in the ministry of this man, Paul. As a, as a body, I think we ought to be very clear that we are combining our prayers for God's blessing on our ministries and our missionaries. That's why I want to pray this afternoon. But I think sometimes on a Wednesday night, you know, quite a number of our churches hold prayer meetings on Wednesday evening. Some Tuesday, some Thursday. Perhaps the majority hold their prayer time on a Wednesday evening. Several, of course, of those churches are on Eastern time. That means... 7.30 to 8 o'clock on a Wednesday evening. There are churches that are praying over the same things across this part of the world with a common desire for the glory of God and the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? Is there anything else like that in all the world? That we all have this common focus on the glory of Christ in his church and we name the same names, we call upon God for the same missionaries and mission fields and we are cooperating and sharing the burden of prayer. You see, God in his wisdom has ordained these things that we see put into practice. These letters, they are God's template for church life. They are not simply highlighting historical details. They are showing us the will of God. Therefore, we are duty bound to do the will of God. You see, God in his wisdom has 
so brought about the church whereby sinners can be saved. Christ died for that. And the church is part of the means that God uses to, as we saw this morning, to see the salvation that Christ accomplished, applied. Sinners are then gathered into local churches. Locally, but not independently. Locally and interdependently. So that more sinners can be saved. And more sinners can be sanctified. And the church of Christ advances. So, to that end, let's be praying Presbyterians. Enjoy our common burdens and our common goals and share those burdens that Christ would hear our cries and advance his kingdom for his glory alone. I love thy kingdom, Lord. What a blessing it is the part of the church of Jesus Christ.